BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm George Chen. I'm Paco Romaine, and you're listening to SupDoc, where we celebrate the good, bad, and ugly of all things docs with insightful interviews, unscripted humor, games, and the occasional horrible impression. Today, we sat down with writer Tony Duchesne. Tony is the author of Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, published by Softskull Press, and now a film directed by Eric Stoltz. His writing has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Mother Jones, The Rumpus, and The Believer. He was a music columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and wrote hundreds of articles covering books, film, and music. He also teaches novel writing at UCLA Extension. Tony wanted to discuss the 2014 experimental and musical documentary, 20,000 Days on Earth, directed by Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard which depicts a 24-hour period in the life of musician, actor, composer, Nick Cave. Tony's film, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, premiered in Los Angeles on February 24th and is available for viewing on Amazon Prime. And now, here's Tony Duchesne. We are here on SupDoc with our guest, Tony Duchesne. Hey, thanks, guys. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, we're Tony and I are in lovely San Francisco, and we're here with our my co-host, Mr. George Chan. Yeah, even though Tony and I live in the same neighborhood in <laughs> L.A. and have run into guys? each other randomly. Tony, you wanted to talk about Nick Cave, uh, but we, we, we know a little bit about you. Why, why were you so interested in Nick Cave? I developed a weird obsession with Nick Cave in 1990. I started doing college radio at KFJC. Oh, yeah. Great station. Yeah. 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 And the other DJs were like, we have to go see Nick Cave. And I was starting to learn who he was. And in those days, you didn't have, you know, this is like pre-internet or whatever. So the only things you had was the vinyl and his photo and the photo of the bad seeds. And they were always in suits. And they looked like they were just... You know, they were singing these beautiful kind of love songs and twisted, fucked up love songs that had violence in them. And it looked like these guys were just in suits and wanted to kill you. Yeah. And um, so I, my interest, I, I went and I went and saw Nick and it just I was just enamored by him as well as the religious uh, symbolisms. I was coming in and out of the because I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. So that kind of meant a lot to me. It was a little bit of my soundtrack of um, understanding uh, that there's a lot more to life than inside the Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many levels of why I love Nick, um, and it's just it's been like a weird obsession for many many years. My connection to Nick Cave also has to kind of do with college radio. I think because I was going to an all boys Catholic school. Sounds like it kind of mirrors your experience in a weird way, and then. I just remember hearing, or I, maybe I taped it. It was back when you had to tape college radio. And it might have been KFJC, but it might have been KSJS. But it was uh, uh, just him playing piano, and it was Mercy Seat. And I had never really heard anything like it before. And I'm trying to remember if I saw that, and then I saw Wings of Desire later, because Wings of Desire, I think, uh, made the, the art house rounds. But, yeah, so my kind of first introduction to Nick Cave was like, probably hearing mercy seat which is all about religion 
And while I'm going to this Catholic school where I'm pretty much like an agnostic. So it's <laughs> kind of a weird mirroring. But yeah, um, growing up in Jehovah's Witness, I think, Paco, you could probably relate to some of this as well, because you grew up in a pretty religious situation as well. Situation is the operable word there. <laughs> if you grew up in any like strict religious household, it's definitely an operation. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I grew up in a... And my best friend grew up a Jehovah's Witness as well. Oh, yeah. And I would sneak him birthday presents. Oh, yeah. that's sweet. What, what did he do with them? Because I'm sure he felt a little guilty about it. No. He oh, okay. No, he, he wanted out pretty quickly. His mom is like just the most Jehovah, the biggest witness that Jehovah's ever had. <laughs> um, we call him the Jehovah's Witless. Because uh, in Michigan, I don't know, Michigan's got this weird Bible Belt thing. Really? It runs through it. Yeah, there's so many different kinds of religious freaks up there. Huh. Yeah. My, my, my dad was one of them, and he was free denominational. You know, Pentecostal kind of. Oh wow! Person, yeah. Pentecostals are interesting, man. Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah we went to a an agape church. Do okay. You know agape. I know that I know the name because we always used it in you know learning the Bible and all that. Yeah, it's kind of like for wayward soul types where it's like um, the big mega churches and like SoCal. Those are all like agape. Yeah. Where it's like people who are like, I'm not Jewish and I'm not Methodist. I'm just like I used to do a lot of drugs. Now I want God in my life. But okay. They're, so they're like the worst kind. They, they're, is it the worst because they have like a loose practicing thing where it's almost like it's uh, disingenuous? No, it's they're super judgmental. Really? Right. Because they used to not believe and now they're like a harsh believer. It's like someone who became sober. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, God. Yeah. Oh, are you drinking? It's like, yeah, you used to fucking pour kegs on your head. Right. Yeah. Tony, before actually you're, you recently, well, I guess uh, in the last 10 years, wrote a novel based on your upbringing in Jehovah's Witness, but you were also a music journalist, so you had some interactions with Nick Cave as a music journalist? Yeah, I got to interview him a few times, um, and, and that was, I mean, that was just utterly amazing and cool. Uh, I had to, you know, before, before meeting him, I had to put my journalist hat on, and it's just like, all right, I gotta, I'm going in here because I got to get the story. And this is just a dude. And then I was, you know, and then after we were, after we had, had our time, I'd walk outside hyperventilating, going, and that was Nick Cave. And that was Nick Cave. <laughs> and um, they, you know, and then it's just so funny. People go, don't meet your heroes. I, you know, I love meeting, I love meeting my heroes. I, the, the first time we met, um, I was, they had me waiting in a conference room at the Prescott Hotel. Uh, I was waiting behind a, a barrier. And I got to hear the other journalists ask questions. And she, at the time, he had a mustache. And she says, what's the significance of your mustache? <laughs> and he's just kind of, I just heard the silence. And I'm sitting there cringing, going, is this what I'm following? And then he just goes, next question. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, cool. I'm like, hey, if I'm going to get a mad Nick, I'm getting it on tape. And that's cool with me. Yeah. So then uh, then the uh, his tour manager goes, he's about to get up, and he's all, oh, hey, you have one more interview with Tony Duchesne. And I hear Nick go, oh, fuck. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like, all right, cool. He's getting even more cantankerous. Let's do this thing. So I come around the corner, and then he looks at me, and he calls to the, uh, to the, uh, the woman who had just interviewed him. He's all, hey, come here. He puts his arm around me, and he said, Tony, what's the significance of your mustache? And I said, it shows a man has commitment. And he just looked at me and went, 
that's the answer. Nice. And then after that, we just had like the most beautiful conversation. Really? The tour manager's like, I'll come back in 20 minutes, Nick's all, no, 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 I'll take care of this one. Don't worry about it. Wow. We ended up hanging out longer. Oh, really? Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. I have a story that is maybe the opposite of that, which is <laughs> with Nick. Yeah. Well, so was that the Grinder Man tour? Oh, what tour was that? That might have been the Dig Lazarus Dig tour. Okay. So it might have been. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I was doing music journalism for a while as well in the Bay Area. And I was actually more of a I was a big birthday party guy, but there's so much bad seeds that I'm not very well versed in it. So this is like about ten years ago or more. Someone just who's a friend of mine who writes for a different publication was like uh, we need someone to interview Nick Cave in San Francisco, and I thought maybe you'd want to do it. I'm like, I appreciate the thought, but uh, he had this reputation as such a difficult interview that I was super intimidated about doing it. And at this point, I hadn't been doing a lot of profile interviews, but I was like, okay, I'm doing it for this magazine that I don't really know. I want to, you know, put a good foot forward with these guys. And I just, I did it, and I, but I was like, in the back of my head, I'm like, I don't know the depth of the catalog that well to like know how, what to ask him. And on top of which, then the publicist was like, uh, just to remind you, this is a Grinder Man interview. This is not a Nick Cave interview. So it's the whole oh. band. And I'm like, okay, so then now I have to think about what am I going to ask Warren Ellis? What am I going to ask like Jim Sklavunos? Like... And then, but obviously it's still a Nick Cave interview, even though right. like Grinder Man is like, you know, like if David Bowie was Tin Machine, right? Like no one cared about the other dudes, right? <laughs> like no one cares. But at the same time, I was just so intimidated. Like I watched like the proposition like beforehand. <laughs> I'm just like, wait, this has nothing to do with Grinder Man. I was just like trying to absorb as much of the ethos of Nick Cave as I could before I went in the room. And then I did this, I did so many dumb things. Like I didn't really have a good list of, I didn't have a written out questions. I brought a video camera in there and they were just like, we're not doing video. I'm like, okay, we'll just leave the cap on. This is the only way I have to record this. So I just have a videotape with the audio of the interview. Oh, wow. wow. And then like, I just like fucking boned those questions so hard. They were so bad <laughs> to the point where they were just like looking at each other, just like, what is this guy doing? And I'm just like, I credit the Nick Cave interview I did with why I don't do music interviews anymore. I don't do journalism anymore. Really? In my it, opinion. It, and it wasn't his fault. It was completely my fault. Did you not ask him about prepared. his mustache? <laughs> I didn't ask that question, but it was like I've asked I asked a pretty bad question that I'm pretty sure like I don't even want to like repeat on here. It was like so bad and like there was no good answer to it. And it was just like basically these guys like these Australian dudes being like, What what the fuck is this guy doing? But I will say at the very end of it, like he stood up and stretched his arms out and was like, wanted to give me a hug. Like he kind of uh -huh. knew that he had put me like that. I was like in a terrible state from doing this. <laughs> yeah. And he just kind of and just said something nonsense like there, there, it's all good. Something like that. Like he just <laughs> I got like pity hugged by Nick Cave yeah. for just boning this interview. And like I would I couldn't even transcribe it. I was like so embarrassed about the whole thing. I oh, I gave my fr I bought my friend dinner to help me transcribe it. I'm like, you're gonna have to listen to this videotape 
and just like transcribe these questions. It's fucking awful. And I think That's I just sent a raw transcript to the magazine. They 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 wrote the thing. They just took some of the quotes and then wrote the thing. But my name is on the byline, so I'm just like, uh, no more music journalism for me. I also just got to the point where I don't. I'm like. Yeah, like this guy is like a rock star. What's he gonna say to me? What what question has not been asked of this dude at this point in time? You know, in like two thousand seven or whatever. So I just like yeah. really like overthought the whole thing and like just it made me so like I can't even look at this guy's stuff for a while. It just left such yeah. a mark <laughs> on me. I I interviewed John Schofield in college. I had a jazz radio program in my my uh, college radio WIDR eighty nine point one FM Kalamazoo Michigan, <laughs> and I interviewed John Schofield and he flossed his teeth during the entire oh. interview. Ew. in the studio, <laughs> goddamn, in the studio, and then kept saying, "We're not going to talk about that." I was like twenty three, yeah, and he kept saying, "We're not going to talk about." It. And I was like, "What about the time you lived with?" Uh, he lived with Jocko Pistorius and Mike Stern. Uh-huh. In in New York, when they all played with Miles Davis and stuff, and I was like, "That sounds awesome to have Jocko as a roommate." Did he do his dishes? He's like, "We're not talking about that." I'm like, "What? <laughs> what? Why?" And then don't open like, the door, then. Yeah. And then when it was over, he got really nice, and then it was like, "Where's the marijuana factory in Kalamazoo?" And I was like, "Ah, okay, this this will work." Isn't it weird that Wait, we so well, maybe you should have got him stoned before the interview? I think I should have. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that we end up doing a podcast now where all we do is talk to other people about stuff. But I guess it's just different when it's not like you're going in with this loaded expectation of someone like well, I, who's like an icon, basically. Exactly, and I think it shows that you and I apparently even back then had a desire to talk to to interview people. I mean, you got to start fucking somewhere. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Let's uh, update our listeners. Sure. So tell us about your novel slash film. Yeah, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. Uh, we just had our San Francisco premiere last Saturday night. Congrats. Yeah, SF Indie Fest. And um, we got, uh, we had the, uh, a lot of the cast came out there. Like the cast is so wonderful. I'm, it's just, the, it's, it's, we're, we were just this fucked up, dysfunctional, loving family for so long. And it was so intense. And then, and, it, and then it's just with uh, it's the uh, the connections there, and um, Eric's on Madam Secretary now. He's executive producer on that. So to get him out of New York is really hard because uh, he's always busy. And we got him flying in for a few hours to do Q and A and hang out. And he actually did Calix uh, film close ups while he was here. Oh, nice. So um, yeah, what are we going back to? Confessions of a Teenage Jesus. Yeah, what is it about? Um, I well, it's a it's a novel set in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it's a love story. Um, I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, 
It took me a long time to feel okay to discuss it in public because if you discuss it in public, you're apostate. Mm -hmm. So, and, um, as I, and I was reading memoirs that other ex Jehovah's witnesses had written and it's all, woe is me. Woe is me. Isn't this stupid? Isn't this stupid? And I'm like, you know what? No, there's, you got to go in as why we were there. Why were our parents converted? And yeah, it's a fucked up religion. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, why do people join? And, um, and then why do people stay in? And what are the good parts? Because people stay for, you know, a lot of it's socialization. A lot of it's, um, and a lot of it's all I knew. I mean, I didn't know anything else. But Where, Where'd you grow up? Millbrae, uh, right by San Francisco Airport, yeah. So, uh, so, so I wanted to kind of write a, write a story that was more just put the reader in as a Jehovah's Witness and, uh, and not to be the judge, just kind of show my experience and, um, and, 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 you know, and, and almost like a love story to what is part of my identity that I don't feel, I don't feel bad about it anymore. I actually kind of feel lucky as hell because I don't think Eric Stoltz would have ever made a movie about my life if I grew up in a normal <laughs> right. way and became an accountant. No, no, definitely. <laughs> so it's fiction, though. I mean, it's a narrative. It's a well, there's probably about 50 percent absolute truth where dialogue like is right on target. Uh, but I went in as fiction to, to nail the story beats because, um, you know. Gabe, who's essentially the version of me, he's our hero. So for so I really wanted to nail the story beats of kind of the hero's journey. At the same time, um, I would have probably made a lot more money if it was a memoir and I talked more shit about it. But I didn't want to be the guy that goes and then this happened and what was me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like you know what people people all grow up fucked up. We all got our fucked up stories. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yes, everybody does. And it's too bad. I mean, it'd be great if more people were able to like put that on paper or, or like into a show or, you know, yeah. Cause then they would be fucked up artists like the three of us, I suppose. Exactly. It's yeah. I, I just realized, Oh yeah, we all have our good stories, but how do you craft the good story? And that's, that's where it is. Well, do you have any rec? I mean, do you have any advice behind that? How do you do that? Um, it rewrites and rewrites and knowing your characters and letting your characters be, um, let, just let, letting them take their course. Um, uh, but in order for them to even take a course, you, you got to keep writing them and writing them and, and start this weird relationship with them. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, that's outside of his parameters, even though I would do that. Um, the choices that he could, you know, when you give a character, to make a character actually have character, you throw conflict at them as they go toward their goal and what their choices are and how they get out of that and what they learn and what gets them in even more trouble. That's create. That's essentially creating the their narrative arc where they'll have the limit limitations or they'll have more knowledge at a certain point than I would have or I would understand. So. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so, um, George, you have... Yeah, um, I was going to just ask a question. Did you do the screenplay for your film? or? Yeah, I wrote you? the screenplay. Did, and uh, how did you have to approach that, like just taking your own work and then changing it into a screenplay format? It was intense. Uh, I, had to, well, I had to learn fast. When Eric said he wanted to do the book, he also said, um, you need to do the screenplay because we can't lose the voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, 
Thank you and holy shit. <laughs> um, I did a ton of research on, um, you know, act one, act two, act three, what story beats, how many, you know, how many scenes can we get in? And then it was just about getting that book and dissecting just what needs to be in there. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was intense. I loved every, I mean, I loved it. I lost a lot of sleep. I lost a relationship. <laughs> you know, it's just, serious. Oh yeah. It's like every, it's like wow. almost everything. Well, it's probably my fault. Cause I'm just, you know, maybe I'm not healthy enough to find a nice healthy lady. Right. Wow. So I'm trying to get to that point. We could dig into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, when, you know, it's like, I got a divorce when the book, uh, was, you know, oh, was on its way to coming out. I was in a relationship with someone when I got the call that I was going to write the screenplay four months later, we were broken up. And she told me at the when we broke up, she's like, when I got that phone call, it just hurt my heart because I knew that was the end of us. And I'm, oh, I'm looking man. at her like, the fuck you talking about? <laughs> and you can't enjoy my success? I'm glad you're gone. <laughs> yeah. You know, everything's about me. So the fact that you got something good is not going to work. Yeah, right? yeah. So, But at the same time, what is my problem for maybe I'm the one that's... Um, you know, maybe I like that little bit of like that little worship. Maybe I got some weird worship complex where I need to not have that. I need someone who's a little more, uh, you know, uh, who can less a syncophant. Yeah, I don't know. And I then I choose. I've chosen these people. Thanks, Doctor uh, <laughs> well, Paco. The reason I the, actually the reason I said that is because this works perfectly in in Twenty Thousand Days on Earth. Yes. Like that that whole scenario that you just went through, it seems as though that's one of the major themes that Nick was bringing up in this in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah well, with uh, with his wife being his uh, muse, and also how hard it is on her. Yes. To, yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And like, and you only see her for eight seconds. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't see her face, and you never see her face. And only entire... in the yeah, you, they, I think they do an archive photo. But in that first scene, her hair is just all over her face, and you never see her. Yeah, she just rolls over. You can ask my wife, Susie. She'll tell you. Because she's usually the one that's getting cooked. Because there is an understanding between us. A pact where every secret, sacred moment that exists between a husband and a wife is cannibalized and ground up and spat out the other side in the form of a song, inflated and distorted and monstrous. So this kind of begs a question, and I would put it to you. This is a pretty experimental documentary in the sense that it's a lot of setup. It's a lot of... uh, It's closer to, like, I was saying... I feel like it's kind of like comedians in cars getting coffee in a weird way. Like when he's like <laughs> driving people around and like, let's just talk about our relationship. And then it turns out that he's not driving. It's a car on a on a flatbed truck with all the multicams and everything. So I'm like, okay, this is a documentary that is more like an art piece than it is a documentary. The parts of it that are... And maybe I'm making an artificial rule about it. Like, it's fine that it can be kind of a fluid thing. It's just funny that it, like, was up for all these awards in England as a documentary. But I feel like in America, people would be like, well, that's not really a documentary. It does bring the question of how much documentary is set up uh, just in general when you're watching documentaries. Um, 
where you know like this one's really set up i mean you really see the uh you know it's like they didn't sit there and go let's just stay the night at nick's place and when he wakes up in the morning we'll have a great shot of him getting out of bed you know it's just like that was probably shot at like you know at noon it's like you know they went through makeup. They, it's you know. That's what probably not I, his wife. Should... It's not his wife. I'm pretty sure. It actually is. It is. That is her. Yeah. So that's okay. um. That I. It's I. I just remember this from interviews and from when the movie came out. That that's Susie um, oh, laying her. in the okay. bed. She just didn't yeah. want to show her face, even though she's a model. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she's like, like oh, I'm not even no. paying for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's her job. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because the the opening sets up. There are a lot of themes in this doc. And it's like lately we've been doing a lot of docs where father father issues are a big deal in some of the, you know, like we did some kind of monster, which is about father Oh, issues. yeah, with Dana Gould. Yes. I loved that one. Oh, okay. I, 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 was, I was loving that one. I, well, well, I can go on and on about that, about that podcast. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, well we can, maybe we can save some time for that. But um, father issues, I mean, obviously aging. He talks about uh, his friends. He talks about memory loss. And you were bringing up before we started recording about how he was like primping himself in the mirror. Yeah. Or even just looking at some imperfections of being 55 years old. Yeah. And I, that, and that's what I love about it because it, you know, the Nick Cave is, I mean, Nick Cave is essentially, is, you know, back in like the 90s, Nick Cave was like a god to me, you know. And this, this, was, this was someone who was far away. And I could see him at a show. And he can get close and he might even point at me. You know, that's as much relationship as I'm going to have with this guy. And he's only going to make it to the United States once every two years to do a tour on his record. And now, as I kind of like as we all get older, uh, we you know, it's Nick Cave also has insecurities. Nick Cave looks at, you know, he's like he was looking in the mirror. He's worried about his presentation for photo shoots, for mm-hmm. being on stage. It's I mean, it's the. Yeah. yeah, like in terms of like his vanity, and it always struck me as very odd because his hairline seems to be moving year to year, <laughs> right? And like I hate Back. to be the one to call it out because I'm just like, if anyone can like rep for being a cool ass bald man, it should be him. And exactly. So it seems weird when I'm like, hey, did he get plugs? What is going on? Like it's move, it's creeping forward. His hairline is creeping forward. I'm like, if Nick fucking Cave has insecurity about his hairline, what good is it for the rest of us? You know, <laughs> like how are any of us going to make it through? It's like Will Oldham is our next guy to look to. Like, I don't know who to talk. <laughs> who's going to be your icon for balding dudes? You bring up a good point because I've wanted to do an article on Nick Cave's hair loss and then hair gain and i could never bring myself to do it yeah because well, yeah one. we're too close to the like like it is a little bit like yeah the emperor has no clothes or something in a weird way yeah like bringing him down to our level so i've noticed something else too um is that you know as you get older your ears get bigger and he always had his his hair tucked behind his ears now his hair is very um over oh, his ears yeah. And then when he untucks it a bit, you see his ears are starting to get bigger. Uh. He's, he's. It looks like, you know, um, yeah, we can dirt on Nick. He's Nick Cave. Well, we're yeah, not Nick like Cave body shaming him. We're just like he's. He is one of us. That's what made Jesus good, right? He's like one of us, also, right? One of us. <laughs> one of us. Yeah, it's just I just find I I find it intriguing that we that there has to be a presentation where I I loved it when he was losing his hair. He looked yeah, like me too. you know. <laughs> 
Warren Ellis has no problem with his hair loss. No. He's just like letting it all out. Yeah. And that guy's, you know. Warren Ellis is like a gnome wizard. He's like yeah. very much like a. What was he? He, he was making eels? the fuck was he making? <laughs> yeah, was it in eel? England. The, people eat eel in England, like lamprey or whatever. I mean, I eat, like, I've eaten eel in sushi, so I figured it's just like a dish over there. Yeah, that dish looked nasty. It was like it was like seaweed and eel, but but wherever he's living looks fucking amazing, well, like the white an... cliffs of Dover or something. Well, that's the other question I have is like, is that really Warren Ellis's house? Because like the office is not Nick Cave's real office; it's a set design. The mm. archive does not actually exist. Like the archive right. <laughs> is a set, which is a great premise for how you oh, go through his I, life. I, didn't catch that. I only got all this stuff from watching the DVD because there's DVD oh. extras and they kind of break. See, all I this bought stuff into down the, the archive thing. I, I actually thought that was real. Yeah, I mean it's plausible. I mean Richard Hell sold his letters to the New York uh, to the Fales Library or something. Like there's a point where all these people are gonna need their stuff archived. Like I had talked to the Prelingers about Jello Biafra's archive, but then I talked to Jello about it, and he's like, I'm my own archivist. I'm like, well, that's not that doesn't work. You see, where there's going to be a breakdown in that at some point. That's not going to work. Um, that's how the cloud got invented. Yeah, but um, <laughs> is that actually Warren Ellis's house? I have no idea. And Because in the DVD extras, you see there's like a prop person who's cutting the eel up. So oh, when he's wow. just like... The the whole thing is so set up in this weird way. It's very artificial, but then like the unscripted parts are like obviously Warren Ellis is really telling this story about Nina Simone and about uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Those parts are authentic, and those parts feel like you're listening to a podcast. So then there's yeah. just this really elaborate setup. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, Paco or Tony, about the the the, it the kind of so setup set nature. Up. Yeah. Well, it just remind me. I mean, Errol Morris does that to the nth degree i mean his entire documentaries are reenactments and setups for the most part i mean the people who are talking to camera don't even know who's in the room because he has that like interview matron thing he does right right interrogatron yeah interrogatron yeah where errol's in a different room interesting and they there's no one in the room with them when they're talking because he feels like they get relaxed a little more relaxed about it yeah Um, but i mean i like in like the mise-en-scene kind of documentary style that was big in the 60s 70s 80s early 90s it's kind of out of flavor now there's a lot Mm -hmm. more setup and a lot more stylistic stuff i mean i was surprised there wasn't any animation in this one because there's anything (laughs) made after 2006 has just tons of anime in doc's head right tons of animation i liked it i actually was when you first told me, I was like, I don't know. I think I, I thought it was a film. I remember when it came out, and I was like, oh, it's a this Nick Cave movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's gorgeously um, shot. The cinematography is beautiful. Oh my god, yeah. it's beautiful. And then I watched, I watched it twice. I watched it last night, and I got up and watched it again this morning because I was like, this is fucking good. This is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I liked this kind of take on a documentary because there's obvious setups. And I mean, I actually, I, I shot a commercial once where I was in a car. And it had the same track lighting that goes over the windshield that makes it look like you're going by street lights. Right. And I noticed mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's four. Then there's a pause. Then there's four. And, there's a, you know, <laughs> it's like the Scooby-Doo thing or the, oh, yeah. the background. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the animation It's the same loops. picture again every four seconds. Yeah. Anyways, I, I really like this movie, um, this doc. I thought it was great. And Nick Cave is not somebody I know a lot about. I never really got into the bad seeds. I'm a, I actually like the birthday party more mm-hmm. in just how much I knew about those guys. But... 
Um, I liked it. I thought it was. I thought it was really interesting and and. Well, you easy like to Dirty watch. Three too. You're a Dirty Three fan, right? Holy shit! I love the Dirty Three. Yeah, that was so, a whole other thing. Yeah, Warren yeah. Ellis being in in those bands. Yeah. Um, uh, and Warren Ellis looks like he could be in Duck Hunter now. You know? <laughs> like the British version of Duck Hunter. He's like, <laughs> I could just see him wearing the old British, what's it, the one-eyed jack? What's their flag called? I don't know. I don't, I don't know jack, either, but I, I got the reference yeah. right away. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, he definitely is like a Lord of the Rings, kind of a combination of like an elf and a hobbit. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the uh, directors of this film, I kind of like, went into a hole about them because it was once I watched these DVD footage, I'm like, so what is their connection? Like I, they apparently had made a music video for these guys before. And, uh, they're Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard. And they did also, they're like kind of like from an art school background. And they did, um, a couple of recreation type films. Like they did a recreation of the cramps, uh, performance oh, wow. at the Napa uh, Mental Institution. They did like uh, a complete shot by shot remake of that with different, like uh, Holly Golightly playing like Poison Ivy. And so, like, they're really into this like recreation of performance. And so, that, that kind of comes out in this. Like, there's a lot, even though the performances are the only really completely uncontrolled things, like all of the tracking shots and everything had to be set up and all the car stuff had to be set up. It's just like within this artificial construct, there's real interactions. For example, like we talked a little bit about Blixa Bargeld, who was famously in the band in Neubauten and he left the band and they, the first time they talk since he left the band is actually in this sequence where they're like just hanging out in a car and like these oh, people wow. just yeah. show up in the car. Like it looks like Nick's just driving. And then all of a sudden someone's in the car next to him. And like, that's like this other artificial thing. I'm like, is this a real conversation that is happening or a conversation in his head? But it's clearly like that part is what's said is totally unscripted, but there is clearly the setup of like, so you're going to get in this weird flatbed truck with Nick and he's going to be <laughs> pretend to be driving like it's like one of the old green screen Disney movies or something. Oh, I left basically because of our management and because I felt that I can't keep up a marriage and two bands. Right. Time was becoming a problem. I had no personal conflicts with you or anyone else in the band. No, no, I, I had no so. I had no musical schisma either. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. When Blixa Bargold left the band, um, I believe it was via email. I don't even think he got in touch. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was email. uh, Yeah, it's been kind of a mystery. And then to finally see Nick and Blixa together talking about it, um, it it wasn't... um, It wasn't animosity at all. No, and it was... There was just kind of like just normal stuff, and it's it's really strange they couldn't bring it up 
you know, a, what, 14 years ago? I don't, you know, I don't know how much, like, how bad it would have hurt at the time if they had a conversation. Mm-hmm. But now we get to see them have the conversation later where they're mutually, you know, they have many years together and they, you know, mutually admire each other, obviously. And, um, and I, yeah, just, I, I like how just um, forthright, like, uh, Blixa is discussing, hey, you know, I was trying to keep a marriage and two bands and I wanted to keep the marriage so I had to dump a band. He said yeah. it he said it way cooler than I did but that, that's kind of my summary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that kind of ties to what we were talking about earlier this idea of like if you are going to wholeheartedly single-mindedly pursue something creatively for your career that can kind of make relationships difficult to maintain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I have had that as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I also I, uh, like that um, with both Blixa and with Warren Ellis, he has like these people that are, it's not just that they're like second in command or something. He almost, he, I think he defers to these people. I think those are the only people he'll defer to are like Warren or like Blixa or someone who's like, I completely respect your opinion. You know? Yeah. He, it's like he needs that. He needs, um, and even Mick Harvey for mm-hmm. so many years. Right. Um, uh, Mick Harvey had. So, he, I don't. There's. I don't. I, that's another narrative. But with yeah, with Blixa, I think before that clip, he talks about the limitations of like working alone, and then when he has collaboration, mm-hmm. then the then everything kind of gets flushed out. And Warren Ellis essentially took that place. Mm-hmm. It's really funny because Warren Ellis was just their. You know, he was their violin player. I think he came in and. 94 or 96 mm-hmm. and then you just stuck with it for years and years and then now you know what what they're creating is amazing i mean i love the direction they've gone after blixa left the band mm-hmm. and what they're doing now it's it's like it was meant to be it's mm-hmm. it's it's so beautiful but i think that's also There's that thing co- of like he's surrounded by people that are like sycophants to him probably most of the time so someone that he can just be like should I do this part differently? Should I do this again? Like someone he can just straight up like have that frank discussion with, I think is important in yeah. his Every life. Every artist needs somebody like that. Like so my brutal critics are my best friends. And that's like I stopped going to open mics pretty much 100% to try out new material. I'll just try them out on my friends because they're really funny and they're brutally honest. Yeah. And they'll just be like, that's a low hanging fruit. You're better than that. You know? Right. Or that's really funny. Like you should explore that, you know. One of those things. Like, I don't need a horrible open mic experience. <laughs> like, I have good, brutal, funny friends. Can yeah, you rent they, your friends just... out to me? Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're for rent. Yeah, the, the best friends are the ones that go, this is a piece of shit. Yeah. And it's I almost don't need to know why. I just go, okay, and then I'll try to look at it and come back to it and go, what, if, what would you think of this, this, and this? And they'll be like, well, that's good. Why would you do that? And I want that. I want that, like, just beat me up. Beat. I'm not in this to be... Um, I'm not in this to be, what do you call it? Well, I am in this to be loved, yes. but I'm not in this to not to do right. well. Yeah. I, I want to do the, I want to do the story as right as possible yeah. and g- get my ass kicked. Well, and I think as you go along in your artistic uh, endeavor, we always start off pretty solo, pretty like, uh, like in our own little cover fort with the fan on writing or yeah. thinking of a play or something. And then as you go on, you kind of have, you bring people into the fold and you have to learn how to use that collaborative spirit to help you out. I mean, 
I, I remember the first time I got into a sketch comedy group and we table read our stuff. I was so married to fucking everything. Yeah. Any criticism hurt my fucking soul. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Six, seven years later, I was like, you're right. Throw out the first page. All right. Like, yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. No, well, yeah, it, this, it needs to be 10 minutes when it needs to be two and a half minutes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You're like, we need a gay elf. <laughs> it's, it's essential. Yeah. Nick just <laughs> talks a lot about needing an editor, which is funny because there's so many songs in here that are so goddamn long. <laughs> <laughs> like right. they really go on too long, but I'm like, I'm not gonna tell him to cut anything. <laughs> like, who's gonna tell him <laughs> to cut a line? Only like Warren can, basically. Yeah. Well, he brings up Hannah, Hannah Montana and Miley Cyrus. Oh, and yeah. I was like, come on, really? That actually that was the you didn't like that? Uh, no, not necessarily. I just don't feel like they are, have earned a spot in a Nick Cave song. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're the same person, but. Well, can I play uh, a game with you guys, actually? Because this exactly yes. dovetails into a game that I wrote for Perfect. you guys. So that's right. In the, in the film 20,000 Days on Earth, uh, they're writing a song called Higgs Boson Blues. At first, it's Hannah Montana. Then you see later he's changed it to Miley Cyrus, which is like you're losing a rhyme inherently. So I don't know why you would do that. Uh, but I wanted to play a little game with you guys, Paco and Tony uh, Duchesne. Both of you can play this game, which is name the author of this lyric. Is it Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus? That's Ooh. the game we got ahead of us. Right hey, now. do we have a little? Let's if we let's put a little music under here. It's just a. Is it a lyric? From Nick Cave, <laughs> Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus. Okay, that's the, that's the song. Perfect. Dun, dun, All right, dang. so you're going to get a reading from me, and I'm not going to do any of those voices, so that will not be the giveaway. Uh, awesome. All right, here we go. And then on our end, do we, I mean, how do we chime I'm gonna, in? Or do I'll we... do, I'm going to go left to right, so Paco first, then Tony, because Tony, you know the Nick Cave lyrics generally more than okay. any, probably either of us do. So we're just, I'm going to, I'll ask you individually after, uh, I'll give you the choices again. So okay. here's the first one. Dog Boy, Atlas, Mandrake, the geeks, the hired hands. There was not one among them that did not cast an eye behind in the hope that the carney would return to his own kind. Paco, is that Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus? I'm going with Tom Waits, my friend. Tony, what do you say? That's the Carney by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. <laughs> One point for Tony, zero God points for Paco. It's gonna be tough. It's like being on, it's like being on Jeopardy with that Ken fucker. <laughs> I like how you call him the Ken fucker because <laughs> yes. I know exactly who you're talking about. All right, oh, so man, I'm fail. so far, yeah, Paco, it's okay. It's a multiple choice, so you got one That's in three fine. chance each time. All right, next lyrics. And the bricks are all scarred with jailhouse tattoos, and everyone is behaving like dogs, and the horses are coming down Violin Road, and Dutch is dead on his feet. Paco. Do I go first? Paco, Paco. who go oh. first? Is that uh, Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus? That's got to be Miley Cyrus. This one, Tony. I think it might. I think it might be Tom Waits. I'm one point sure. for Tony, zero points for Paco. It is Tom God. Waits' Ninth and Hennepin. That is the uh, name wow. of that song. Yeah. So, uh, so far, it's no real contest. Um, here's another lyric. Yeah, when my world is falling apart, when there is no light to break up the dark, that's when I look at you. Is that Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus Paco? Miley. Tony, what do you say? Uh, I say Miley too. You both get a point. That is Miley yeah. Cyrus. Oh yeah. The song Miley. is called "When I I Look at You." 
Nice. <laughs> All oh, right. Clever. Here we go. This one, uh, I think it will be a little bit of a stumper. I put on my coat of trumpets. Will she be there? Is my piccolo on straight? Is that Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus? I'm going to go Nick Cave. Tony. Oh, man. I'm going to go a long shot and try Miley Cyrus on that one. Paco, you got that correct. That is Mr. Yes. Clarence that was by Nick the birthday Cave? party. That was Nick Cave. Oh, I know. What song, what, what song is that? It's Mr. Clarinet by the birthday party. Oh. So it wasn't a bad seed song. Nice. You Nick Caved me. I did. Uh, yeah, I, I, was like, I was like, the fact that it's like anthropomorphized musical instruments will make you think it's Tom Waits. And then you went a whole other way with it. So I thought you were going to mm. go for Tom Waits on that one. All right. Uh, coming up, we got two more. You guys are uh, actually almost even now. Uh, Paco's got two points. Tony's got three. All, All right. right. Dead heat. Here, next lyric. The guy you're with, he's up and split. The chair next to you is free, and I hope that you don't fall in love with me. Is that Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Miley Cyrus? I'm going Miley on that one. Tony. I'm going Tom Waits on that one. Uh, Tony, I feel like you've won the game already. That was Tom Waits. Oh. Wow. I hope wow. you don't fall in what love with me. What song was that? I, I think it's called I don't, Hope You Don't Fall in Love With Me. Huh. <laughs> I didn't write it down. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> last chance to just cinch it completely. And uh, uh, it's going to be the last question. Here we go. Here are the lyrics. It didn't take long for the room to fill with dust, and these four walls come down around us. Is that Nick Cave, Tom Waits, or Amalia Cyrus? Paco, what do you Nick think? Nick Cave. I'm going to go Miley Cyrus. Tony, you are the winner. That was Miley Cyrus <gasps> for It was Walt. Miley Cyrus? Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. You know I was trying so to find well. the, most emo, <laughs> the most emo Miley Cyrus lyric. And so... <laughs> Super emo. Tony, you uh. got five out of six. Paco, you got two out of six. Um, our guest is a winner. That is how Yay. this game is ding, played. Ding, 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 ding. You know what you win? You win Carl Castle's voice on your answering machine. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that Thank is you. such an old reference for a podcast. Okay. <laughs> it's wait, wait, don't tell me. That's funny. Okay. <laughs> you ever listen to that? Uh, many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's get into some of these talking, some more of the talking heads that we see. Um, we are introduced to the therapist. Oh, yeah. At some point the in therapist. this doc, uh, we see uh, Nick opening up about his dad for one. Yeah. Two. What did mm-hmm. you think about that scene, Tony? I loved it. Um, I I uh, the I, I love the guy who plays the therapist. I don't know who who he is. But he is a he real just... therapist. <laughs> he is, is he an really? actual therapist. Yeah, Darian Leader. Yeah, he's like uh uh the the head of the founding member of the Center for Freudian Analysis. And born, he, he's born in Alameda for some Alameda. reason, but he's British, so that happens. And he's like a Lacan well, expert too. Yeah, he wrote a book called huh. Lacan for Beginners, which I need to read because I do not really know how any of that works. But yeah, so he's a real therapist, even though some of the people are actors, like all the people in the archive are actually actors, but they are actors who also are archivists, but it's not a real archive. So that's right. right. But yeah, Darian Leader is actually uh, was picked by the directors because he they knew he could actually like get it, get deep into it with Nick. That's what and that's why it felt so good, because you're just you're sitting there and you kind of know Nick is going deep, like talking about his father. Uh, talking about his first sexual experience, you know what? What was the first time you felt that? What was it? The first time you had, uh, like, noticed a woman, right? And then, um, and then, uh, I don't, you know, this was like, may this may have been later in the film. How 
uh, pornography, like in in his ho- in his apartment in uh, Berlin, oh, where yeah. it was just like he was so into pornography mm-hmm. and religion at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, religious icons. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, talking about a, do- a dad who died, I think when he was 19 years mm-hmm. old, and how effect how much that would affect somebody, especially at that time, because I don't know when the birthday party moved to London if they were uh, I guess if they were like 20 or if that was right after that I think they moved pretty much right after he said it was basically like he dropped out of college and then his dad died and then he, he took off and that wow. was like uh, he, he talks about that like that was why his relationship was with his mother was kind of like he was like you know still sending her things like we got written up in the NME you know like he still kind of wanted her to like understand a little bit like what he was going through but he was also like on heroin and stuff so right sure right it was like a hard well, always, time overall we we're always looking for our parents to be like you did great you know you always want that attaboy from your parents no yeah. matter what age you are you know right and and during those scenes doesn't he talk about um has your dad ever seen you live and there was maybe two, two times, times yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When he was like, "Did you see it?" And he's like, "Yeah, I saw it. I checked it out." Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, God damn it! Give me more. I need yeah, more. It was yeah. interesting because he said he looked like an angel, or he thought he was like an angel, even though it was yeah. like you know the birthday party, like notorious, like Australian, like I don't know if scumbags is the right term, but just like <laughs> yeah, just dark, dark music. Yeah. Absolutely. And then so then we're introduced to a guy that I had to look up. But you were telling me the actor's name. Oh, um, Ray Winstone. Yeah, Ray Winstone. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know who this person was just by, you know, because he was in a beard and stuff. But you've seen him in a lot of stuff. He's in The Departed. He's in. Yeah. uh, I know he was in Quadrophenia and which takes place in Brighton. So, yeah. Right, and he's like, every time I come to Brighton, it fucking rains. And he's all pissed <laughs> off. It's awesome. It's like, like you said, it's like a musician in cars with musicians getting eel. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> it's a great scene. And then he's like, he's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just turning 56. How old are you? And then you just see Nick Cave's like pissed off face. <laughs> just like, oh, you ask me my age. I just didn't know that they were like actually good friends or like why they're in the car together. Yeah, there was no explanation of who this person was or what the connection was. Well, yeah. they just kind of show up like ghosts almost like it's like a Christmas past kind of situation. Well, you know what this reminded me of was Night on Earth. Yeah. The Jim Jarmusch film. Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. a good comparison. When I, when I watch it this morning, it had that feel like and that's such a great fucking film oh yeah mm-hmm. yeah and it had that kind of like uh, like uh there's it's very roomy and spacey and very emo and it has this kind of almost i, I hate to use the word dystopian but it has kind of that i guess maybe whatever nick cave does gives you that feeling of mm-hmm. ennui or whatever. yeah yeah <laughs> throwing out words now but yeah it's interesting and then so then also we were talking about this earlier but then kylie minogue is one of his writers do you think it's weird that she's in the back seat i thought that immediately i'm like why is she in the back seat i yeah i didn't know if they did that just because it's a longer piece and they need it's easier to film when someone's in the back seat as a two shot i don't know if they did it to to set it up i mean i also think like his relationship with women is very strange and like that kind of comes (laughs) across in this like even his relationship with his wife it's like when he meets his wife and is like blown away it's just like Every like construct of sexuality that has been cultural or whatever intrinsic, like he's like all the I dream of genies, everyone just like they're all magnify in this one woman. And it's just like it's weird when you think about like how the lyrics of so many of these songs are just like 
I killed my lover and threw her in a ditch. You know, like that's like so many of <laughs> the lyrics are that. And not to say that that is like what it's about necessarily, because I don't I'm not going to say like he's like hates women, but it's like the material definitely. And like what the thing is, like women still love it. <laughs> this is the thing that's crazy. Like women still love Nick Cave, but it's like really because it's a lot of just like I, I murdered her in the woods. It's a lot of that kind right. of stuff. And like it's but very it's strange. Dark. Yeah. It's so dark and mysterious, and he's a crooner. And I don't know how these British rock stars stay so fucking skinny. Like, what is there like a secret diet book for these guys? I've I, be a well, junkie in your twenties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, junkie. I asked him that once. I was like, "How do you stay so skinny?" And, he, and then he just said, "Oh, just eat what you want." And I'm like, "That's not the answer, Nick. I'm asking you for me." <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's yes, also of that yes. Australian stock where he's like six six or something, and so like he's just is like real thin, but like he's giant because he's a giant. So he's uh, probably he weighs tall? a lot. Oh, uh, he's about six one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Everyone's tall to me. I don't. Yeah. Know. Right. <laughs> And then we're introduced to Warren, man. Like when you first see him, you're like, oh, it's like his special needs friend that like <laughs> helps clean up around the studio because he's on the floor with his like keyboard. Right, that's right. And yeah. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And then in another clip, because I, I haven't seen recent pictures of him. I didn't know he had such long hair and the beard. And then in the back, he's on like this elliptic machine. <laughs> yeah, that like is a good, like, yeah, on, the workout machine. Yeah. He's on the workout machine like, you know, and it's like, oh. Who's this guy? And then like, oh my god, it's Warren Ellis. That's fucking awesome, because yeah. he's like his Paul Schaefer, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, he's his music director, basically. I, I don't like that analogy. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah, wild, Letterman wild. the Schaefer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah, the Nick Cave talk show. Great, it's a great thing that is existing. <laughs> like, it is going to be like comedians in cars getting coffee with Nick Cave. <laughs> that is really what the show should be from then on. It's just it's him and Shane, long. him and Shane McGowan in the car together. <laughs> like, just Shane's like, "Can we stop here? I need a, I need to pee." <laughs> like, why was Shane McGowan not in one of those cars? I mean, like, I feel like more association between them than him and Kylie, really. But yeah, uh, that that's a good. I mean, Ky, but Kylie, well, I I I think, and they talked about this for a minute in that when the when that came out, I think that was on Murder Ballads. Mm-hmm. That was a major. That was a that was a major selling. That was like yeah. one of their biggest selling records because of Kylie. Right. It's and like if Taylor they, Swift had the, done something with like I don't know who the modern equivalent would be. I don't know. Yeah. But like yeah, she's she was like the most famous Australian for probably twenty years or something. Yeah. And I love that. So it, um, that and uh, if I remember right, that that song was originally Blixa Bargeld played, sang oh. the woman parts to it. And there's a version a version of that out there, and then then they finally got in touch with Kylie to do it on uh, in a studio on her end. Yeah. And then when they did it live, Blixa uh, took her her point her part uh, when when they didn't have Kylie around. <laughs> That's pretty much. I whenever I want to replace Kylie Minogue, I think Blixa Bargeld. Like I think yeah. if you're gonna reshoot Street Fighter, you could have Blixa Bargeld playing Kylie Minogue. Yeah. Yeah. If if I ever want to date, you know, either Kylie Minogue or Blixa Bargeld, they're totally interchangeable. I could love them both. <laughs> yes, exactly. One's just a cute Australian pop singer, and the other one's like an upset German guitar player. <laughs> what is the what is the biggest Kylie? Is it do the locomotion? Like come on, do the locomotion. Like, what would you <laughs> but with like people like banging Can't get you out of my head. And, like a cat screeching. Yeah. That is, yeah, the Eisterzende Neubauten version of "Can't Get You Out of My Head." 
I tried right. to drill my head open. You could not. Oh my god! I, I still remember when my brother brought home one of their albums, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" In a bad, like I was like, "I don't understand what this music." Noise mountain is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I never like he was really into like industrial noise. Like Helgru Milde, you know, all these uh-huh. German things. And I was just like, oh, I don't know. I like Super Tramp. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on with this stuff. <laughs> this makes me hurt. This makes me hurt. So let's play Cast This Dock while we, now that we're talking about the people. So um, here's a little music. Gotta cast this dock. Gotta cast this dock. And this is a game we play called Cast This Dock. And so uh, let's go with you, Tony. Um, who would you? Who did you pick for Nick? Uh, I picked uh, Noah Taylor. There, uh, Noah Taylor did a film called Shine. That's the first time I saw him, and the minute I, I, I just remember seeing him. I'm like, that could be Nick Cave's yeah. kid. <laughs> and um, and I've seen him do stuff now yeah. as he's older, and it's just like he could uh, he could carry the attitude. I think. Yeah, I right. just saw him in Paddington too. Which is, you could also like throw Nick Cave in his role, I guess, in Paddington too. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, no. Taylor's always kind of been called like a little bit of like a Nick Cave. Like, did he ever play him in anything? I feel like I I thought maybe he did play him in something, but oh, that would be perfect casting then. In in uh in the video "15 Feet of Pure White Snow" by Nick oh. Cave and the Bad Seeds, uh, Noah Taylor's in the corner doing the smoke machine. Oh, he is. He has a, <laughs> and yeah, he's he Australian a too, so that's even more yeah. on point. I had a weird one because I also just started watching. One more time with feeling after watching this, and have you seen that? You know, I've I haven't seen it yet. I it was I wanted to go see it, but the death of Nick Cave's son felt so like it Personal. just felt so bad. I didn't know if yeah. I wanted to be there right. yet. I really need to see it though. Now at this point, I just haven't had a lot of time. I but I need to sit down and. Yeah, I mean, I didn't finish it. I just started it right before we were getting in here. But it is like pretty like it's it's so weird to compare the two things. And I don't really want to compare them. They're like really different types of projects. But um, in any case, like he's a little bit older and like like some major tragedy has occurred to him only about two years after making this film. Wait, I didn't know his son died. Yeah. Yeah. Which which one? uh, One of the twins. The the blonde one or the brunette one? Uh, I wish I knew Arthur. Wow, so I'm know. not sure. Uh, yeah, I, 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 which were, Yeah, I think it's oh, it, Arthur so is one of the kids. Yeah, they're the fraternal twins, and that happened yeah. like right after this came out, I believe, because that was 2000. I want to say it was 2015 when that happened. What was the circumstances? Um, they were playing on the cliffs in Brighton, and uh, he had. I guess he dropped some acid and uh, fell off the cliff. The kid did? Yeah. Whoa. That was, is that the story, Yeah, that George? is what I, happened. I, I feel like this has kind of ruined the game somehow. I don't know if this is like we need oh, to no. redo the game setup. No, but um, fine. My fine. point being, well, when I was watching this, just like it's only a couple <laughs> years later, and I had this weird thought in one of the close-ups of Nick where I'm like, oh, Stephen Tobolowsky could play Nick Cave. Like he's a little bit of a thicker, older dude, but like facially... Yeah. They have a similar yeah. face. I don't know if you knew who right. Stephen Tobolowski is. No, who, no, who Needle is that? Needle Nose Ned from uh, Groundhog Day. He's in a bunch of stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah in a weird wow. way. Like That's if you a look good one. And a close-up, you could see it. Like if it was just going to only be headshots, it could be Tobolowski could do it. 
and um, Silicon Valley because I ran, in, ran oh, yeah. into him yeah, at yeah. a bar in Los Angeles, Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh -huh. And I was like, I loved you in Groundhog Day. And he's like, thanks. And I'm like, and Silicon Valley. And he's like, thanks. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> like, he's sick of that. Other. He's sick of that. New I came up with Ned. Kevin Bacon. Ooh. Kevin oh, Bacon the nose. Like, yeah. Yeah. Put put a black wig on Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And then just let it sit in your mind for a second. Wow. I, I, I can totally see it. I can totally see it. If you could do the voice. Yeah, you could totally do it. And oh, he's yeah. got the, he's got the skinny body too. Yeah. At the same time, he I, I could see him doing the stage performances and nailing them. Yeah. Well, he's a musician. Oh, well. that's right. Oh, he and his brothers I, have that shitty band. I would also just say Kevin Bacon, but you need to put Peter Gallagher's eyebrows on him. That's the only. Oh, right. thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, I was gonna say Peter Gallagher, just the eyebrows, nothing else. Like that was the only part. So for me, uh, for the therapist Darren Leader, I had uh, Tony Shaloub. Um, Interesting. Him. Hmm. Yeah, I could see him. I could see Tony Shalhoub as a therapist, but yeah, right. the the vibe of that dude was like so. He has a very weird on screen presence that Darren Leader. Yes, does. he did. Yeah. Um, um, and then uh, I'm sorry. The name of the actor that we talked. I guess he could play himself. Oh, Ray <laughs> Winstone. Yeah, where Ray yeah. Winstone. Oh like, yeah, yeah. How yeah? How can you get another? No, who's there's that other kind of crazy looking. Um, British dude from In Bruges that was uh, with oh, Colin Farrell. What was his name? Uh, uh, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan yeah. Gleeson, Irish guy. Yeah, he's also oh my god in Paddington Two. <laughs> I think Paddington Two is the secret casting of all of this. Yeah. This episode has been sponsored by Paddington Two. <laughs> it's surprisingly <laughs> good. Like you don't need to yeah. have seen Paddington One to like it. <laughs> I do want like uh, just to like dive into uh, the when when um, oh but Warren Tony had and, to, sorry Tony had a, oh, I'm sorry. A, a, another casting for ha, for, for uh, Blicks of Bargold oh when, uh, the yeah um, I was thinking Helen Marin for uh, <clears throat> for Blicks of Bargold uh, because I just I I think <laughs> she can pull off his attitude oh my and God. probably be even more intimidating than Blixa <laughs> if she went there. She's just That's amazing. Yeah, I I just I feel like I I don't know, there's just something about her that she, you know, she's just adorable and amazing but don't fuck with her. Right. I, she just kind of gives you that vibe. Yeah. And you had another I, pick for Warren Ellis too. Oh, Warren Ellis. Um, I was the, well. I was thinking big, uh, Jeff Bridges, Big Lebowski uh, era. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I just to be I, for something about Warren. I wanted. I just wanted to be cartoony. Mm -hmm. I almost think maybe he should be animated. Oh wow, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like because he's just he's There's he's a CGI he's elf he, like in the whole. Yes, yeah. he's like so other. It's just he's yeah. he's an alien to us. Yeah. That's so awesome. I think yeah, that's well, all the casting ideas I had. Yeah. So let's dovetail, though, into one of my absolute, maybe my favorite part of this movie is when they're talking about Nina Simone. Yes. Oh, God. And they're in Warren's kitchen or whomever, wherever that place yeah. is. And we already see Nick already brings up, he already mentions Nina in a talk, I think with the therapist when he's talking about just working, get one of his early jobs working, and Nina was this crazy Because transformation's a big theme. Mm -hmm. in this doc as well transformative transformation matter of fact it's in his closing lyrics it was the song in this doc so he's talking about nina and she comes out and she's just like oh just like this fierce woman just like oh and she's like intimidating the crowd with just like her clenched fists and then she sits like dramatically at the piano and by the end she's people are enraptured and she's waving and sending kisses and stuff and then they're in the kitchen with warren and, and warren apparently was in that gig yeah mm -hmm. with uh 
with Nick because he's like, remember when we played with Nina? And he's like, oh my God, uh, she was so intimidating. And I think their roadie or their manager was walking him by her green room and noticed that she was a little, seemed a little upset and kind of not into the gig. And he said, well, what can I do to make this better? And she said three words that I fucking love. She said, I need champagne. I need cocaine, and I need sausages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I busted out laughing when I heard that so much. I was like, that's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, so he left, and he came back with champagne, cocaine, <laughs> and sausages. And she was much happier about that. <laughs> that is fucking awesome, man. Have you ever seen, did you ever get a chance to see Nina? The, the, uh, the documentary or her life? Her life. Never did, no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The doc's really good. It's good. Yeah. What about George? You ever get to see Nina? I never got to see her perform. No. But yeah, that yeah. documentary is great. But like, I can sort of like, it's weird how it wouldn't show really like what she was like it, it, near the last couple years of her life. Like, I could she had all the mental health issues, and I guess she was just angry all the time. And like, mm-hmm. yeah. it's Doctor Simone, like like going around yeah, like, yelling right. at people about stuff. So, yeah, yeah, but I mean, she earned it, you know, <laughs> like if anyone did. Yeah, Hell she, yeah, like, she yell earned at it. People. So, oh, yeah, but yeah, they all dude. like, yeah, worshipped her. And then Jerry Lee Lewis, that story is pretty good, too. I mean, that also goes into the thing about aging. You're talking about this idea of aging and like the ti- titling this 20,000 days on Earth. It has to has to tie in somehow, even though it's obviously not one day. Right. This is like another artificial right. setup that is not actually a day. Which I be, like that they yeah. pretend it's a day, you know, <laughs> it, it, I, I, I know it's not, but let's just pretend it's 48 yeah. hours and, and Nick just drives around with people right. and eats lunch and nothing but a thing. And then they're at Sydney Opera House, right. you know, yeah. on the other side of the earth, whatever. Teaching some <laughs> French kids nice... yeah, to sing. <laughs> oh my God, that part yeah. is hilarious. Where Warren's directing the kids in the studio. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I was going to be a teacher, but then I discovered heroin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thing about this being set up, it doesn't bother anyone, huh? It doesn't bother you guys? I feel like it would no. bother me if I wasn't super interested in Nick Cave. Like, we oh. watched this other film called Flames that is about this couple's relationship. And I'm just like, who's the third camera person when these people are having sex? Like, what is going on? And it just yeah. takes me out of it. But in this mm. case, it's like, okay, it, the interior, it's like you're getting the most interior view of Nick Cave that you're probably going to get, but he still doesn't feel vulnerable, really. It just, he feels like mm. he's still in control of the situation. Mm. Maybe the mm. most vulnerable he's being is when he's in the car with Blixa. That actually feels like maybe mm. huh. the most tense. Uh, mm. Even like that whole archive setup where he, he's just like, oh yeah, that's when uh, Tracy Pugh got peed on or whatever. Like that whole, <laughs> oh my God. it's like he must have told this story a bunch of times, right? Because he, he yeah. has it like in his recall. He's like, oh yeah, you have those photos because it's not really an archive that you is, is being monitored by archivists. Um, so I think you just have to be like, this is like a magical a magical view of like a fantasy vision of him, but it's also about him maintaining this thing of like, I can't reboot my identity. Right. Like that. He says that in there. He's like, Mm -hmm. why would I want to like, this is me. Right. But like the me, it's self-made man stuff. It's all about self-made man stuff. And it's also straight on fucking brand. You know, if it was done differently, so it didn't seem Nick Cavey, then it would also probably have, like, if, if this was about Jeff Tweedy and it was this stylized and, you know, like, 
Like, come on. But like, it's so on brand for Nick Cave that seems like a Nick Cave joint in a sense. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Like it has that feel to it. So I think that works in a sense for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are lots of lots of themes in this. Like I said, transformation, aging, memory loss, friends, father issues. Is there something that you were surprised by in this that you didn't know or something that you took away from this that you weren't expecting, Tony? Oh, good question. Um, I, I re- what I really liked about it, and because uh, when people try to track Nick Cave's life, yeah, the, well, there is one part. I mean, the archive part. I feel like the archive part is the weakest part of the movie. Oh, really? Because um, okay. I just, for me, I don't want, I don't care too much about. I, w- I want to know the now of Nick, mm-hmm. and I feel like they do a good job of what's now of Nick, um, and you know. Um, and, and as, I mean, when I saw him in 1990, I was like, I'm so glad I get to see him before he dies. (laughs) (laughs) Cause that was this old 30 year old dude who was a junkie. I'm just like, wow, I'm getting to see him before he dies. And then he doesn't die. And then I'm stuck (laughs) buying his goddamn records until, (laughs) you know, how many years later I go into every single stupid show being the fanboy that I am. Um, but it's a testament to somebody who is putting the time in to actually continue to create and to continue to age with his with his songs. Uh, you know, there's so many bands where they're they, you don't they're not putting in the time anymore. Mm-hmm. With Nick, uh, I don't know if they bring bring it. Well, they do bring it up a bit. I mean, he is in the office eight hours a day writing. His mm-hmm. whole life is writing, and then when you know, and even on tour. Um, He's, you know, they used to party a lot more, but now when he's on tour, he's working on screenplays. He's writing a book. Yeah. He's when he's in the van and when he's in the hotel, there's work involved. All of our days are numbered. We cannot afford to be idle. To act on a bad idea is better than to not act at all. Because the worth of the idea never becomes apparent until you do it. Sometimes this idea can be the smallest thing in the world. A little flame that you hunch over and cup with your hand and pray will not be extinguished by all the storm that howls about it. If you can hold on to that flame, great things can be constructed around it that are massive and powerful and world-changing. All held up by the tiniest of ideas. So that was uh, basically what you were talking about and what you do for your class and how you're saying like the kernel of the idea, just keep going forward, don't get distracted, keep pushing it, keep writing for it, and just basically build that universe, right? I mean, that's yeah. really important. Yeah, and and yeah, just keep the authority on it too. And I just love how he, he describes it as a flame, a small flame that you just have to kind of keep brightening, you know, I just I can I listen to every time I hear that even when I watched it again before uh, we we, I knew we were going to record it still just brings chills Mm. to me every time I'm just like it gets me every time I hear that Mm -hmm. yeah I think like the work ethic it comes across so strongly in this like the mount he's laboring over everything and just like his weird typing style that he seems to have (laughs) Um, and even the fact that he wrote a novel 
when he was like just like living in a homemade loft in Berlin. And I've never read that novel. Have you read The Ass and the Angel? It seems like that's. Have you read it? I did uh, when it came out, and I did not like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, the first I, I, time I read attempt. it, and I was like, yeah. wow. Somebody just said Nick Cave wrote a novel, and they said, let's just not edit it. Let's go ahead and release it. <laughs> right, yeah. But, I mean, I'm sure he didn't have an advance for that or anything. It was just purely right. something he seems to be driven by this mania and, like, keeping on, on like, uh, like a monomaniacal track for creativity. Um, and But, you know, you, you, I was thinking about how in this film he talks about his relationship to religion or how he even though he doesn't believe in God in his works, there is sort of like a God or there is like a judgment happening. And I was thinking about that a little bit, like, you know, growing up in, in a religious household yourself and uh, the religious imagery that is in all of this music. Uh, do you feel some connections with that stuff? Oh, definitely. That's one of the reasons I really connected with uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and their material. Um I, as for were you asking about maybe my beliefs too? Is that what, or no? Um, I guess I was thinking more like you said that you said that you think of him almost as he's almost like a preacher in some ways. And then yeah, you I really I that. really liked that he had a preacher style and a preacher mm-hmm. delivery. Yeah. Um, and and even now his shows it, it, it it's almost like you know because he interacts so much more with the crowd. He goes into the crowd. He make he's he's the guy that now understands how to how to manipulate a whole crowd instead of just kind of like he was the saying front the front row. Yeah. Um, and then you notice the tours after that, he's walking all the way to the back and clapping and getting the whole audience clapping and making them quiet. It, it, it feels like it could be a sort of a church mm-hmm. um, that, that it's, and what isn't a church, you know, these, when you go see a band, it's, it, there's, it, it it's elevating you on some spiritual level because music does that. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, I, that I sounded really serious there. No, that's you can be serious. Oh, can I be? Yeah, well, All right, cool. Talking about fucking religion, man. <laughs> Shit tends to get people serious. Ugh, fucking religion. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a. But I mean, you're absolutely. I mean, there is. I mean, we we also just did. I am Sam Kinison, and he was a former preacher. Right. Yeah. Obviously, turned comedian and had that kind of cadence. And I'm very much drawn to that cadence as well. And the whole church idea. I just watched this video online that's called Choir, 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 mm-hmm. where in New York City they get just as many people they can shove into a room. They're taught how to sing the backup parts to rock and roll songs, and then they get a real rock and roll singer to come out and sing the song with four or five hundred New Yorkers singing along with them. So David Byrne came out and sang Heroes by David Bowie with 500 New Yorkers who were just taught how to sing backup on this song like an hour earlier. So there's, there is a beautiful part of the church idea where in a collective of human beings doing the same thing at the same time w- w- fucking lifts your spirits. Yeah. It works. It's true. It's just the charlatans and the con men right. that are involved that make it suck. So you have that. But... Um, uh, this has been awesome, and I thank you so much for bringing uh, Twenty Thousand Days on Earth to us because I had never seen it, and I'm glad I was able to. Um, do you have something to plug? Do you want to talk about your movie real quick and where people can see it and all that? Yeah, kind of um, it's, well, it's actually premiering uh, in Los Angeles on February 24th, and then it will be online on Amazon, and I believe 
DVD maybe in April or May. We're we're recording the um, DVD extra the um, the audio track for the extras uh, in February. So Confessions of a Teenage Jesus, Jesus Jerk. Jerk. Yeah, awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you much, Tony. George, thank you, yeah. buddy. Thank you, Paco. Thank you, Tony. We'll see you in the neighborhood. <laughs> I know. I, I'll see you next week, man. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of SupDoc, show notes, updates, and more at SupDocPodcast.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SupDocPodcast. If you have comments, corrections, or want to suggest a documentary, email us at SupDocPodcast at gmail.com. The show is listener-supported. You can donate to the show at Patreon.com slash SupDocPodcast. If you can't donate financially, please subscribe, comment, or tell a friend about SupDoc. We'd like to thank Documentary News for their ongoing support. SupDoc is produced by Will Scoville. Our theme music is by David Siegel. 